The text for the message of this Easter morning is from Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. You are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit which dwells in you. Let's pray together. O Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for touching so many lives, surrounding me with so many wonderful people. Thank you for a family of believers who can celebrate our socks off because of your great glory. Would you come now and speak? I feel so inadequate on Easter morning to say anything that's worthy of your risen power. So you do the speaking, I pray, and open the hearts to receive through Christ. Amen. Very simply, I want to try to direct your attention to this verse, Romans 8, 11, and show you that if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also. God promises clearly and unmistakably in this verse that if the Spirit has taken up residence in your life, even though you die, you will be raised again. In glory. So let's rivet our attention on verse 11 and let the Lord write it on the tablet of our hearts as the supreme personal relevance of Easter. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit that dwells in you. There are two big ifs in this verse. Not just one. One is very obvious, but there are two. One is the if of Jesus' resurrection. Is it true that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead? Is that story credible? And the second big if is the if of your conversion. Have you received the Spirit of God into your heart? Has He adopted you as His child? Are you being led by the Spirit in becoming like your Father? If either of those two ifs is untrue, then you can't have assurance this morning that God will raise you to glory in the last day. These are the two most important questions you can pose this morning. Is it true that God raised Jesus from the dead and do I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in my heart? And I want to try to point you to the way of assurance in both of those questions. First, are you sure that God raised Jesus from the dead? 
How do you decide that? I think the issue boils down to the issue of the credibility of witnesses. Just like today, you have to decide when somebody comes and tells you something's happened, you've got to find a way to determine whether what they say is true or not. And you do make those decisions every day. I think there are about seven questions that you ought to ask about any witness to an event that you wonder if it's true or not. You ought to ask it about Paul, and you ought to ask it today. Here they are. First, am I open to the possible truth of what Paul is saying, and am I ready to change my life if it's true? You see, if you answer no to that question, none of the others matter. If you're not open to the possibility that it's true, if you're not willing to change in according to truth, then whether it's true or not doesn't matter to you. And there's no point in playing academic gamesmanship with the other six questions. Second question. Does Paul's moral character, say his humility, his love, his submission to God, make it unlikely that he is easily given to deception or that he blatantly fabricates. Third question. Do his witness and his teachings hang together? Or does he speak out both sides of his mouth and contradict himself from chapter to chapter or letter to letter? Fourth. Does he offer supporting witnesses or evidences, rather, for his claim, and do they hold up? Fifth, are there other credible witnesses besides Paul, or is he alone in making this astonishing claim that God raised a man, Jesus Christ, from the dead and exalted him to his right hand? Sixth, does the claim yield insight that helps make sense out of the total picture of things? Give meaning to life. Meet needs of the world. And finally, seventh, are there any lasting effects, independent effects, that would give credence to Paul's testimony? Well, I'm a Christian because I say yes to all those questions. And I suspect you're a Christian because you say yes to all those questions. Yes, I am open to change if Paul's claim proves true. Many of us have experienced those changes. Second, yes, I have seen enough of Paul, the man, in 13 letters that he has written of his character that I have a firm and reasonable persuasion he is not easily given to deception. He is not a blatant fabricator. That's not the man we meet in these letters. Third, yes, the more I study this gospel as Paul teaches it and his message, the more convinced I become of its deep unity and coherence. He isn't speaking out of both sides of his mouth. His language does cohere. He doesn't contradict himself. Fourth, yes, Paul does give supporting evidences. For example, in Galatians, the well-known story of his own conversion from a church persecutor to a church planter, he had to be very careful in writing that testimony to the Galatians. There were enemies there who would have latched onto any 
thing he said that couldn't be verified, and they all knew him from Judea. Besides, the signs and wonders that he claimed to do could have been shown to be false by his opposers. Fifth, yes, there are other credible witnesses to this event. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, and Jesus himself said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. Did Jesus say that in vain? Sixth, yes, Paul's teaching about the resurrection does fit into a total picture of reality and to begin to make sense out of things, out of history and life, and meet our deep needs for forgiveness and hope. It fulfills century-old prophecies and it reveals that God's purpose, as we would expect, is not to be defeated by death, but to raise His Son from the dead. And finally, yes, there are lasting effects of the resurrection that you can look around the world to see. For example, at the very beginning, the transformation of fearless fishermen into bold apostles who are willing to die for this testimony. Many of you have experienced remarkable changes in your life by the power of the risen Lord as you received Him into your heart. Not only that, the resurrection unleashed a world Christian movement of stupendous proportions. Today, virtually every country in the world has a Christian witness in it. Today, Christianity is the only world faith without a cultural home base or headquarters. It is a universal faith. Today, there are far more professing Christians than there are professing adherents to any other faith on the globe, including the huge faiths of Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam. Today, according to David Barrett in the World Christian Encyclopedia published two years ago, 60,000 new people a day claim allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord, and 1,600 New churches open their doors in Jesus' name every week. Therefore, I think any of you here this morning can have a reasonable persuasion that God raised Jesus from the dead. Most people fail to become Christians not because of lack of evidence, but because of lack of interest. And that leads us to the second big if in verse 11 of Romans 8. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, it's not enough to be persuaded that God raised Jesus from the dead. You know why? Satan is completely persuaded that God raised Jesus from the dead. He is more certain than anybody in this room that God raised Jesus from the dead and he trembles. Good doctrine saves nobody. In order for the resurrection of Jesus to do us any good, we have to receive the spirit of the living God into our heart. Verses 13 to 17 very appropriately go into this need in detail. Let's read these together in Romans 8. 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that is, sinful deeds that we commit in our bodies, you will live, you will be raised. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, if you read those verses backwards, there are three evidences that you can use to help you determine and gain assurance whether you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you or not. Let me show you what they are. Verse 15, first of all, moving backwards, it says, If you can cry out with sincerity to God, Abba, Father, then you have the spirit of adoption in you. That is, if you look to God and in all sincerity count Him your Father from whom you will receive your needs met and your way guided, you have the Spirit. Second, in verse 14, if you are led by the Spirit of God, then you are a child of God and only then. In other words, do you look to God for the one to prescribe the way you should live and guide you? Do you look to His Word, inspired by the Spirit, to guide all your life? And when the Holy Spirit prompts you in the way of righteousness, do you yield instead of resisting? If so, you have the Holy Spirit reigning in you. And third, verse 13 if you put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, you will live. That is, you will attain unto resurrection that I've just been talking about. In other words, when faced by a temptation, do you avail yourself of the Holy Spirit's power and by the Holy Spirit slay the act before you commit it? That's what it means, I think, to put to death the deeds of the body. If so, then you have the Holy Spirit. Do you battle like that? If so, you're battling in the power of the Spirit. I don't think God wants anybody in this room today to be unsure that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And in a room this size, some of you must be saying, well, I'm just not sure. Let me point you to two verses that are so clear and plain as to how to receive the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 says, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance, what's that? It means turning away from Sin and from self-direction and turning to Jesus Christ as the one who forgives you and now leads your life as your Lord. Baptism, what's that? Baptism is a sign of faith in the Lord who reckons you now dead to your old life 
and alive to newness of life and gives you power to live it. Repentance and baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus have as their center and essence this one thing, faith. Which is why Paul, when he explained how to receive the Holy Spirit in Galatians, simply said, you did not receive the Spirit by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. The Holy Spirit will come in to anybody and everybody who trusts Jesus. Trusts Him for forgiveness. Trusts Him for how to live. Trusts Him for the power to live the way you should. And trusts Him for the promise of the best possible future from here to eternity. You can receive the Holy Spirit this very hour if you're willing to pray like that. In fact, I'd like us to pray together. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer for you to say in your heart. Some of you are Christians for 30, 50, 60 years and you can just affirm it with me as a rededication of your life to the Lord. Some of you this morning might want to pray this prayer with me and make the first decisive commitment to Christ. Let's pray together. Mighty and merciful Jesus Christ, I now turn from guilt and trust the provision of your forgiveness. I turn from sin and trust your new path for my life. I turn from self-reliance and trust your power to help me obey. And I turn from fear and trust your promises for my future, your provision for my forgiveness, your path for my life, your power for my obedience, your promises for my future. I trust you, Lord Jesus. And I thank you that according to your promise, I have the Holy Spirit in my heart. Amen. If you pray that prayer from your heart and your life bears out the sincerity of it in the ways that we saw in Romans 8, God dwells in your heart and the rest of this message is for you and nobody else. Romans 8:11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you All I want to do in the time that remains is unpack with you two implications of this amazing promise that God will raise our bodies from the dead Number one, God is profoundly concerned with your body. If He weren't, He would let it rot in the grave and tell you to say on your deathbed, good riddance, which is what many philosophers have said. God never says that. And I want you to look at a text. If you've got your Bibles, you might want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
where Paul says some amazing things about our body and the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 6.13, he is refuting people who say the body doesn't matter. Your thoughts matter. Your feelings matter. Your ideas matter. Your body, well, you can indulge it or you can uh, deny it. Either way, it's not important. Paul doesn't like that. He regards it as profound error. In verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 6, he cites the slogan of these opponents. And then at the end of the verse, he says, The body is meant not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now look at these two amazing statements. The body is for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. What, what does he mean? The body is for the Lord. Drop down to verse 19 with me. It's so plain. Paul answers his own question. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And there's a link up back with Romans 8:11. Which you have from God, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So when he says the body is for the Lord, he means that we were given bodies for the purpose of using them to glorify God. There is a use of the eyes, and a use of the ears, and a use of the tongue and a use of your feet and your hands and your appetite and your sex drives, which glorifies God. And there is a use of your eyes and your ears and your tongue and your feet and your hands and your appetites and your sex drive that dishonors God. And the word of the Lord this morning is, glorify God in your body. And he goes on to assure us that he is so committed to being glorified in your body, that He will see to it that it is raised from the dead so that it can go on glorifying Him forever and ever world without end. Your body is profoundly important to God. He is not against the body. He is for it. Why else would He raise it from the dead? I want to show you a couple of snapshots of your body in a thousand years if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you first snapshot comes from Daniel many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Here's another snapshot from a parable of Jesus of your body in the resurrection. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Can you look at the sun? Somehow He will enable us to look at each other. Don't worry. Philippians chapter 3, a third photograph. Christ will transform the body of our lowliness 
to have the same form as the body of His glory by the power which enables Him to subdue all things to Himself. God created your body and God created you to glorify Him. And therefore, He is going to raise your mortal body no matter how mangled or deformed or emaciated or disease-ridden. He is going to raise it from the dead and make it new and it is going to be so strong, so healthy, so beautiful that when I see you on the resurrection day, I am going to say, you are like a bright blue sky on a summer day. You are like a million stars in glory against the black brilliance of the night. Your radiance is like the radiance of the sun. I behold in you the form and the grandeur of Jesus Christ who made you, raised you, glorified you, and preserved you in His presence forever and ever. But what about now? That is a spectacular hope, especially for those of you who are sick, who have arthritis, who feel your life draining away. It is spectacular. And it happens to young people. Oh, was Vicky. Vicky died this week, 25 years old. Toshavim has lost one person a year in the last four years. That's really high. And it keeps us sober at Bethlehem. It isn't just old people who die. Young people die. Middle-aged people die. And this promise is phenomenal for a person who knows that it may not be too far away. How does it work to give help now? Jesus went to a banquet. He was sitting there looking at the eminent people that his host had invited. And he did what he so often did in something we would call so impolite. He turned to his host for all of us to hear and said, When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your kinsmen or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they can't repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now think for a minute what the point of those words was. Isn't the point of those words to answer the question, God... How can I go on doing good when there are almost no earthly rewards? That's what that text is intended to answer. Where can a husband or a wife get the emotional strength to keep on giving year in and year out when there is no reciprocation? Where does a man or a woman who would like to be married get the strength to be content and continent 
for 70 years of single ministry. Where did Maud Carey get the strength to press on for 54 years of hard mission labor in Morocco only to be rewarded at her funeral with two sprays, six visitors, and no tears? Where did Jesus get the strength to endure the cross and despise the shame, forsaken by all of His close friends, denied by His rock, beaten with rods, a crown of thorns, nails through His hands, a spear in His side, mockery from those He made? The text says, you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. For the joy that was set before him at the resurrection, he endured the cross. And you and I can endure what it costs to obey him for the next 60 years. Jesus did not promise that obedience would be rewarded by men. On the contrary, He said, Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely on My account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, not here. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Don't get me wrong. There is joy in serving Jesus. Vastly more joy than if you had made your aim the reward of men. But our joy flows from the unshakable hope of Romans 8.11. Not from the shifting circumstances of our life. If the Spirit of God the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. If you really believe that God is for you, He is for your body. If you really believe that He will give life to your mortal bodies, that everything you have given up in obedience to Him, no matter whether it was misery for 60 years, will be repaid to you 100-fold at the resurrection of the just. If you believe that you are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father, then you have an inexhaustible reservoir of strength with which to keep on doing the good God has called you to do, whether anybody thanks you or not. And I know many of you have to do that. Therefore, the essence of the Christian life is not the struggle to win the reward of man. The essence of the Christian life is the struggle to keep on believing that we will be raised from the dead in glory. That's the one thing Satan wants to rob us of. Faith in that great strengthening promise. And the great foundation of that promise and of our hope is that God raised Jesus from the dead, that He reigns now as King over heaven and hell and death and sin, and that He cannot fail in His purpose to bring us to glory, to Him 
belong praise and glory and honor and dominion now and forevermore. And all the redeemed of the Lord said, Amen.